This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Siegel. I'm broadcasting live from our Wharton studio on campus. Uh, we're going to have a really interesting discussion on global macro. Uh, before we get to that, please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Professor, you've been talking about the Fed. You've been waiting for them to show uh, some flexibility. Uh, we had some big moves. Uh, seems like Powell is coming your way. Yeah, Christmas has come early to the stock market. Um, even I was surprised um, how flexible the Fed was. I thought they would be remain hawkish for another meeting. Um, but um, not only did they put more rate cuts in, uh, he actually said we were talking about rate cuts. Um, which he had denied, really, and almost denied in a speech uh, just 10 days earlier. Um, and uh, that combined on uh, on Wednesday with um, um, a um, uh, uh, cool PPI report um, uh, I, I, uh, that I think that it just lent uh, to an, an explosion in the market. I think fully, fully justified. I, I've been... You know, traveling around the country, giving a lot of lectures, and I put as number one risk to stocks uh, an inflexibility of the Fed that they're going to be as stubborn uh, in lowering the rates as they were in raising the rates in 2022 uh, um, and 2023. Now, uh, I wouldn't say it's 100 percent taken off the table that they, you know, may be too late. Um, but certainly the flexibility has lowered that percent that they would be uh, uh, stubbornly high. And I think that that really encouraged the market. I, I think that that lowers the probability of recession, raises the probability of a soft landing, does not guarantee it. Um, the data has been coming in after being quite weak in the previous week. I would say it came in quite okay this week, particularly, I was impressed by uh, jobless claims uh, 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 sinking all the way to 202,000. Um, retail sales were fine. Uh, there was a little downward revision on the previous month, but the momentum was actually uh, slightly stronger than expected. Manufacturing is still on the weakish side. We saw today some pretty low reports, but nothing that's falling off the cliff. And in, in other words, we see a slowdown from the blistering uh, GDP rate of over 5% that we got in the third quarter. But right now, I would say consensus is um, between one and a half and two. I think uh, actually uh, the uh, GDP now, the Atlanta Fed, had actually poked its way above 2%. Um, but the consensus is one and a half to two. And, um, you know, that's that's certainly... That's certainly very good after a 5% uh, uh, first uh, third quarter and 2% plus in the first half. So, um, you know, it, 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 this, this rally could certainly, and I expect it to go further. Uh, Dow has already hit all-time highs. I expect the S&P to follow and probably the NASDAQ, although that's a little bit below what it was before. Um, What's happening does argue for some sort of shift between value and growth and the beatdown mid and small caps, which would be hurt the most because of their domestic orientation from a recession, um, now getting a little bit of relief. And particularly the banks, if rates are coming down faster, this is good for the banks. This is good for real estate. This is good for offices. Uh, and the rollover rate uh, that many of them are going to have to experience uh, when they roll over their loans. So uh, there was a relief on that uh, financial side. Um, office REITs actually uh, rallied. 
Um, and uh, I think it's just uh, g- uh, good news in general. Yeah, Professor, this was one of the topics that was popular on finance Twitter this uh, this week. Uh, and actually, our, our friend Cliff Asnes was profiled in the Financial Times today. Uh, so it's an interesting, long 4,500-word piece on factor investing. But Cliff put out a tweet saying, who had the Fed reigniting euphoria would so far be fine for value, but crush quality versus junk in the pool? I didn't. He copied a few of us in there. And then he said, lots of good answers. But few as to why it's junk, not expensive stocks screaming. And that goes to, you know, this expensive stocks moving on duration versus value and junk. What any comments as you would hey say on this, you know, bond duration proxy for value growth junk? Right. We have two things where I mean, in favor, of course, of the long duration. Uh, assets is the lowering of the rates. And, and there's been a dramatic lowering, but dramatic lowering of real rates uh, down to, you know, one say almost, almost a, a 90, 100 basis points in a period of a, a month or two uh, that favors long data, uh, dated assets. But what favors the, the short dated value assets is the lowering probability of a recession. Um, so th- those two are battling each other. And, you know, particularly like you could say junk, junk, it's, those people with bad balance sheets suddenly might get some relief and they were beat down to, you know, levels that were so low. If the rates are going to come down, they may be able to roll over where they weren't before. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, some of these assets have become pretty close to big options. <laughs> and if you get any relief on potential earnings on a on something that's out of the money or near out of the money, you're going to get a big percentage move. In 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 uh, in those type of uh, stocks, so uh, I think that that uh, you know balance sheet relief for those distressed uh, 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 um, uh, assets uh, is not surprising to me, uh, given the uh, signal of the downward movement of interest rates. And and so the the small caps you were seeing priced for this recession, and that's sort of one of those stories of. Of doing that is, is that even yeah. more true in Europe in some ways? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we had talked many times that the small and mid cap uh, S and P's were twelve, thirteen uh, times um, earnings, eleven times earnings. I mean, that is recession levels. They've basically been priced at recession levels, um, and now you know, with a little brighter future <laughs> on the recession side. Um, I would say soft landing and, you know, it uh, is, is, is increased from, you know, you know, 50, 50 to 60, 40, but uh, lower rates could save some of those firms. I mean, we, you know, uh, whether we're going to have two negative quarters of GDP or not, or just two lower quarters of GDP, um, uh, will, will yet to be seen, um, so, uh, but I think it's the relief rally on the fact that rates will be going down. Now, we should also stress that we had a big drop in future rates. We've talked about the fact that one or two of those downward uh, movements of the of future rates is due to risk hedging and is not really a prediction of where uh, the Fed or the market is. By the way, I thought it was interesting that uh, John Williams, who uh, was interviewed, uh, uh, you know, this morning, um, tried to pour cold water on some of the excitement of lowering rates. He said, oh, maybe premature for uh, March caused a short-term reaction in the market, but not a long-term reaction in the market. Because the market's looking at the data, looking at the whole the whole dot plot situation. I don't think they're moving in January, but I think there's a real good chance that the first downward move will be in March. Now, one of the uh, the final questions here for you, Move in, in bond markets have been so extreme um, now, you know, below 4% on the 10-year. Has has the big move in bonds now already behind us? Do you think there's a lot more to go in bonds? You know, if there's a recession, clearly there is a real softness. You know, you'll get down to the threes or maybe the high twos. We've talked about the fact that we're not going back to the, you know, years that just prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, when the rates were 1% or not. Uh, the fact that we, you know, that uh, that that bonds have been damaged as a hedge asset, uh, looking forward with inflationary pressures, et cetera. My my feeling is is that long bond three and a half to four. I I have said that, and Fed funds at three 
looks like uh, a normal type of Fed once the inflation rate gets down to two, two and a half. Uh, so real rates have risen um, uh, uh, from the uh, 0.5%, although the Fed doesn't acknowledge that. They're still at 0.5% long run and 2.5% long run from Fed funds. My feeling is is that the Fed funds are going to settle down about a point higher than that. But that's still 200 basis points below the current 5.3% level. Well, Professor, uh, I'm glad the Fed's been listening. They took your advice. They're coming your way. And kudos to all your all your, your great commentary on this issue throughout the year. Thanks so much for joining us to start the show. Thank you. See you next week. Have a good weekend. I'm going to turn my conversation to our guest for the hour with Eric Beagleisen, who is a the deputy CIO and partner at Three Edge, uh, sort of Boston-based money manager, uh, ETF strategist, and, and like I've known Eric and his team, I want to say since I've been in the business from when they were back in their windward days in Boston, I remember meeting their team, maybe almost 20, I mean, 2006 timeframe. Eric, welcome to Behind the Markets. Yeah, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Um, so you heard a lot of takes from the professor. Um, anything you want to push back on or any views that you agree with? Uh, just to kick us off before we get into some of your hot takes on what's going on in the markets. Yeah, no, I, I largely agreed with, with everything he said. Uh, I think, you know, we, we ourselves have had a, a view since the market peak back in January of 2022 that any, any you know, upward moves we saw in the market over 22, which wasn't many, of course, that the market sank double digits that year. Uh, and even this year, it was maybe just an extended bear market rallies of sorts. And I think a lot of that narrative, that that, that, that base case is no longer the case, as we saw the Fed uh, at, the, at the last meeting this week, uh, really indicate that that rates are um, are more likely to go down from here than up, and so therefore, I think uh, you know there's a good chance we'll see new highs. We saw the Nasdaq touch intraday highs yesterday, uh, and and likely to see uh, uh, markets move higher potentially from here. So I, I think when in, in hearing about where some of your views, uh, it seems like you know one of the things you guys have a global mandate. You you go across equities, bonds, commodities. We're going to talk about all these different views. But right now, uh, your hottest take is being long China. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yeah, we, we model, like you said, we model um, U.S., uh, European equities, Japanese equities as a proxy for, for Asia uh, and China and the broader EM, including India. Uh, and we have found, we have been constructive on Chinese equities more recently, definitely more of a tactical trade, uh, definitely contrarian um, since the, the space has really seen quite a bit of outflows this year. Um, you know, and this is not on the heat. While it is, you know, probably what we would consider to be an undervalued asset class, uh, the economics have not been particularly constructive. You have a struggling property sector. You have, uh, you know, many trillions of dollars worth of, of debt. Um, and so this this doesn't set up a recipe for success. Uh, the, a lot of a lot of hope coming out of the COVID lockdowns was that growth. You know, China was going to be this global growth engine that never really manifested. So you say, what's really attractive here? And and really, we we when we model uh, the various asset classes that we have. We really break it into three major buckets, these long-term valuation factors, these more medium-term global macroeconomic factors, and these shorter-term investor behavioral factors. And it's really that behavioral side, uh, alongside the fact that it's undervalued, that's really screaming, hey, this may be an opportune time to buy. There may be some margin of safety in terms of how far down it can go from here. Uh, perhaps there'll be a, a, a stimulus. There have been se several stimulative measures by the Chinese government so far that haven't really materialized into, in, you know, enticing investors back in. Uh, but but it, it's attractive, at least from from the behavioral levels that, that it's at. And we could talk about how you define these different things, but maybe so wait, when you say behavioral, what does it mean? I mean, so I think of behavioral science and finance and it's it's uh, well, define behavioral for you. Yeah, so think of it as um, really two stages of, of things we're looking at. One are these what we call canaries. Think of a, a, a miner going into a, a the, into the mine. Uh, they have a canary in a cage, and if the canary dies, they know there's a problem, right? So think of us having some mathematical equivalent, looking at really short-term sharp moves in certain inflation measures, certain currency measures, certain credit spread measures. If any of these kind of manifest or turn on, it's not saying something bad is definitely going to happen, but it's a risk, and we want to acknowledge it and maybe reduce risk 
in the portfolio, client portfolios. If none of those are present, and typically they're not present, maybe 10% of the time we see one of those uh, turn on. Uh, then you move on to this main stage of our behavioral uh, filter, where you could think of what we're doing is trying to identify what's the general psychology of, of market participants for this particular asset class. And think of something we're doing as something really, really simple, like taking a 200-day moving average and then building these levels around that 200-day moving average. And generally speaking, equity markets that are going up that are above that 200-day moving average tend to stay there. And that's where markets tend to behave nicely and play nicely. We call that maybe a rally mode. And if you're, But if you move up too far and too compressed a time frame, we might say you're overbought. Maybe you're right for a correction. And similarly on the downside, if you're breaking out to the downside, you might say you're more in this correction mode. And if you're down there, you're likely to continue going down until, of course, you've fallen too far uh, into compressed a time frame. Maybe you're oversold and ripe for a rebound. And that's really where we found China is down in that oversold region. And then the neat thing that we do as well is, is rather than just saying, hey, this is a really simple technical that you've, that you've constructed um, – what we what we do is we also drop, we, we bring in that that valuation level that we calculate. Are you an undervalued? Are you a fair valued? Are you an overvalued asset class? Do you have a positive or negative economic outlook? And that also informs what the output of that behavioral uh, factor filter is going to be. Okay, so there's a bunch of uh, you got valuations on one side, you got technicals and sort of market action dictating behaviors. Can you talk about for, for each of these assets, is there a canary for each asset? So like, does China have its own canary in the US and India has its own canary? Or is it a general canary that you're looking across all of the risk spectrum? So yeah, we'll have unique canaries for each. Um, I should say the same, it's the same algorithm or same mathematical construct, but using country specific data that will drive whether or not we're, we're worried about, you know, sharp move in inflation in the US versus, say, India. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, there are going to be certain canaries that if they trip, uh, then we want to we acknowledge them across all equity asset classes. For example, certain sharp moves in, in Chinese, the Chinese currency might have us uh, concerned about all equity investing, just given the global presence of China and its, its influence globally. So, yeah, this has been a time of U.S. dominating everything, the Magnificent Seven dominating everything. You heard Siegel say maybe next year we get some broader participation value, small caps. As you think about how you allocate around the world if, with this view that maybe China is an interesting contrarian take here, how do you think about size and how do you think about playing that? Obviously, you have more than one mandate, so there's probably many, many different ways you execute this, but, but talk through how you would build global allocations and how you think about allocating to China or EM? Yeah, well, we've been, you know, for the, the better part of two to three years, we've been, you know, as a firm stating that we find U.S. equities to be overvalued. Uh, and we still have that same view today. Uh, our model quantitatively has not found U.S. equities particularly attractive up until very recently. And that, that it really helped put the nail on the coffin on finding them a little bit more attractive with the with the announcement on Wednesday this week. Um, but we, too, are finding pockets. We're finding very attractive value now in, in small cap in value stocks, uh, just like Professor Siegel said. Uh, we have we have particularly liked uh, Japan. We talked about China. Um, it's going to be interesting to see with the market's anticipation of reduced rates and potentially um, the ECB and the BOE, uh, that is European Central Bank and the Bank of England, coming out to say, hey, we're not going to follow suit with the U.S. We're going to keep rates higher. Uh, that may also, you know, further put downward pressure on the dollar that we've already seen from the highs back in, say, September, uh, and that, you know, that that's that's going to hurt, um, you know, that potentially hurts, you know, big export nations like Japan. Um, we may see more of a rotation back into U.S. but undervalued U.S. Right, and so I think that's where we too like the the small cap value trade. But now, how much could you allocate to somebody like China? So it depends on the strategy. So we offer core, these multi-asset core solutions, we call a conservative, a more moderate, we call total return, a more aggressive, we call growth. And so d these are different risk spectrum, you know, uh, solutions that we offer to our clients. And so, you know, our conservative solution can have anywhere from a minimum of 6% equity to a maximum of 30% total equity. But even within that 30% bucket, we would, we would cap a China equity exposure at 10%, regardless of how wildly bullish we might find it at some point. Right. So there are individual caps. Very good. When you 
you talk about the U.S. Uh, looking a little expensive. So is it is it now the technicals? It's it's the behavioral side and some of the gross side. Maybe it, it's it it's going to scream as the most expensive market around the world. There's no question. Any measure of value will say that. Um, but is there a particular measures of value you all particularly like? Yeah, yeah, there is. We you know we. We, we, we totally buy into the concept of valuation, very mean reverting principle. You know, you know, simply put, a lot of folks will look at some metric of a company like a Google. We're, we're ETF investors, as you said. We don't invest in single stocks, but somebody might look at a, a stock like Google and take a look at its PE and then compare it to peers in the industry or an index of information technology stocks and determine, well, this individual stock's higher than its peers, so it's overvalued. It's more likely to come back down or vice versa. So we buy into the mean reversion concept. I think for us, we find that earnings, largely speaking, are often restated. There can be some accounting shenanigans that go on. Uh, and so we prefer to look at top line revenue. And so sales and particularly price to sales ratios become the real key metric for us. And then so we start there, we convert our price to sales ratio into what we call this normalized earnings measure for a given index. And then what we need to do is grow to get a valuation. We have to grow that at some interest rate, some growth rate of earnings out into perpetuity. Then we need to discount that back to the present and then at some at some discount rate. So there's a little bit of math that goes into determining what those those rates are. But ultimately, you're left with a, a valuation level. Then you can compare that to the prevailing market price to determine, hey, or do we consider this to be undervalued, more fair valued or, or overvalued? Price to sales. So sales is interesting. I mean, so this is one where you have margins becomes a key variable uh, where, you know, in terms of the PE Absolutely. and other things doing U.S. is probably like in addition to like the most expensive price to sales, we have some of the highest growth, but margins are probably much higher than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, but we, you know, we put, we put the valuation level now uh, on par with, you know, where things were during the dot-com bubble uh, before that burst in 2000. And then prior to that, um, just before the market sold off in October of 1929 uh, leading into the great depression. And again, that's not a time that we don't look at valuation as a timing instrument by any stretch of the imagination. Overvalued markets can get more overvalued, as we know. Uh, we've seen the U.S. continue to do really well uh, in 2023, despite these high levels of overvaluation, which it even started the year at. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities. I mean, the, the, so that I've looked at that. 2000 price to sales versus now also and it, I, it is because margins have expanded so much and some of it is tied to this interest rate question i mean so there, there's always these questions about can mar well th there's been some really interesting papers on our margins mean reverting and will you know because mm -hmm. we're at like sort of almost all-time highs for margins and you can say all right so we've had uh interest rates falling we've had more globalization profit margins are higher overseas than the u.s so the tech nature has led to higher profit margins for the U.S. But if you were to say, are there, are there factors you would be worried about on that that would cause the margins to mean revert more? Uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen that yet. Um, but yeah, we would certainly be, that would be um, of concern. I think you're in this world now where the market has been believing that there were going to be interest rate cuts next year. And it's almost like the Fed has now agreed, okay, twist my arm, we're going to actually cut rates next. Um, and so there's a lot of excitement about the anticipation of the reduction of, of interest rates. What will be interesting as we head into the new year, potentially as markets continue to climb on the, this sort of euphoria that Professor Siegel even in commented on, will be, you know, if we see the risks here are that inflation starts to go back up, maybe we never reach the 2%. The risk is inflation goes up and then actually rates, the Fed maybe needs to step back in to raise interest rates further and or unemployment starts to rise. Uh, and the Fed needs to cut rates, which is exactly what they're talking about doing now, but it will be for a different reason, right? The the reduction in rates now is believed because the Fed has, has threaded the needle and they've, they've saved the day and we're avoiding a recession and it's a real Goldilocks scenario. And I think it'll be different if the rate cuts still come, but for, for a different reason because of because of a rise in unemployment, for example. And I think that 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 will that will scare marketed you know, participants. And I think that that could be the beginning uh, of the end, right? That could be the beginning of the next drawdown. And as we know, historically, you know, when interest rates start from the first cut to the final cut, it's actually the market tends to fall on average of say 20% uh, between the first cut and last cut. 
Yeah, this is like a is every period is unique to its own set of things. And so this will be okay. like if if you could say you understand why they're cutting because they're cutting because something bad is happening in the economy. Where right now they're talking about cutting because oh, just well, inflation is actually much lower than we thought, and and it's coming down faster. And the economy's fine. And there's nothing really wrong. We're gonna sail through this with no issues. But right. inflation's coming down, so we don't need to be overly restrictive. So it'll be fascinating if if all those so many people put out that you know the first cut is actually a very bad sign. But this might be a different, very different cycle. Could be exactly right. Exactly right. I agree with that. How much do you put in on now? You, we, you talk about, we talked a little bit about your behavioral, looking at some technicals. You talked about the valuation signal. The third factor we haven't talked a little bit about is economic. Um, and then we can talk about how they all come together. But in terms of the economic signaling, um, you know, one of the things I've talked about with Siegel he, in his, a lot of his research and books, he says economic growth is not return. And that gives some analogies of, last 20 years, China being one of the faster growing countries. And then it was a disappointing return when we, actually with some of the studies who we did from book 20 years ago. But, but you know, there, there's had, there's been a, some correlation work on GDP growth and return. And it's sometimes negative because people get excited by the fast growing countries. How, how much, how much, obviously you guys believe that economic growth leads to some variable like what are the things that that you guys look at and and how you how that comes into a factor in these models sure yeah well I'll, I'll, let me start by just telling you what we don't do and then I'll, that'll help lead into what we do actually do and so what we don't do is we don't stick a lot of data series into say an excel spreadsheet or some kind of computer system and and have it spit out a formula and, you know, when you stick data into this formula, it tells you what to buy and sell, but there's no real intuition or a neural network, you know, that'd be, that's a fancy regression. There's no intuition. There's no way to answer the why is it telling you what to do? Well, because the computer told me to, right? We actually start out as humans on our research team building these formulas, having, having a logical or economic thesis about a cause and effect relationship. So everything we do is causal. The factors we drive are in theory indicative of the prospects for future growth, either positive, positively or negatively. And that's what we're trying to capture. So we're looking, and, and oftentimes many of our factors are nonlinear in nature, whether continuous like an exponential function or piecewise, just having certain non-derivable inflection points. So to give some, some, some examples, you know, we look at you know, key, key interest rates. We, we really focus in on a T-bill rate in a given economy as well as a tenure. So all else being equal, we might say that a decline in interest rates is good for equity market valuations. Uh, it increases the net present value calculation. It makes the cost of capital cheaper for firms. And so people might be quick to say, well, therefore, a rise in interest rates is bad for the, for the exact opposite reasons. Um, and we'd say, well, hold on. You know, a decline in rates is generally a, always a good thing. But from a low level, increases in interest rates might just mean there's growth in the economy. So maybe you need to have now this factor that says, okay, decline in rates equals good, a rise in rates from a low level equals good, but over and above a certain inflection point, you know, mm. a critical interest rate level, that equals bad, right? So we, we, we code these things in. I'll give you, a, I'll give you another example too. Um, you know, we really, we put a lot of work. So I talked about the three month T-bill and the 10 year yield independently. We're looking at the movements in these, but together this makes a yield curve right? The 10-year minus the three-month. We care less about what the spot yield curve is, that is the prevailing yield curve by just subtracting those two. Uh, we care more about what it looked like, say, six to 10 months ago, because it takes, it's the shape of the yield curve from that long ago that we think it takes to ripple through the economy. So we lag our yield curve. That's A. B, we, um, we might talk about, and I'll give a contrived example, but we might say, let's say the T-bill the rate was at 1% and the 10-year yield was at 1.01%. We wouldn't necessarily call that positively sloped, right? That's like no. Yeah. We're not, you know, banks aren't jumping up and down to lend credit when you have a one basis point positively sloped, right? You need, you, you, you know, this, this factor leads to growth when depositors can put money in at the short end and banks can make a spread to lend out at the long end. So there needs to be this con concept of a reference rate. You need to be more positively sloped than X before we start considering this a positively sloped uh, factor. We also say, well, mate, you know, we're looking at, say, the S&P 500 as a proxy for, for U.S. equities, uh, you know, half, half, maybe 50 percent or more of the revenues that come from the S&P 500 are overseas. So should we just be looking when we construct our yield curve measure to represent U.S. potential growth? Should we be looking just at U.S. rates? And we'd say probably not. So we build a pro rata, unique global yield curve that's unique to the, you know, export, export driven mm -hmm. 
uh, revenue from in each of those countries. That's interesting. Um, then, then you look at then you look at a, a situation like 2008, a credit contraction, a nasty one, and, and these happen from time to time, and we may we may have one ahead of us uh, in the months to come. In a credit contraction, investors sort of indiscriminately sell everything and pile into really safe, high quality instruments. Um, so, what does that do to your T bill yield? Well, it's going to uh, you know make the rates go down. The rates go down, prices go up. So, what does that do to your yield curve? That steepens it even further. That would actually tell you to buy equities in an October 2008, which would be, of course, the, the worst possible thing you could be doing then. So what we do to uh, combat that particular uh, you know, use case when, when and if it happens is at all times in our yield curve measure, we're subtracting off the TED spread, which is the prevailing, the difference between the interbank rate, that is the rate banks charge one another, minus the prevailing risk-free rate or the T-bill. That's usually a well-behaved, almost like a static number you're subtracting off, so it doesn't really impact anything. But in times of crisis, when banks won't even trust one another, that really gaps out and that properly inverts your yield curve measure, giving you the right signal to stay away uh, during those periods. And then finally, of course, we live in these unprecedented times of central bank intervention, not just here at home with the Fed's balance sheet expansion that we saw, but, but globally. Now, our Fed said, you know, back when we had zero interest rates, they were not taking interest rates negative, you know, even though other central banks did. Uh, that said, they really expanded the balance sheet. And thanks to uh, the Wuxia uh, shadow rate paper that the Fed wrote, we were able to convert that balance sheet expansion into a shadow rate offset. So even when that, that T-bill rate was forced down to zero by the Fed, but not any lower, we were able to calculate what the equivalent shadow rate might be, how deeply negative it might have gone, which was around around over negative 100 basis points, uh, looking at that rate at, at, at various times to really that would properly steepen the yield curve, though we still found the market overvalued anyhow. There's so much to drill into on this topic. Um, <laughs> the inverted yield curve that we have today is, has been inverted and for long that we have. So is this a signal? I mean, you talked about a little bit your U.S. signals, but are you and you talked about, hey, maybe this credit contraction comes, but is that a yield curve inversion got more inverted now um, that that your start that could play out uh, that has you worried? Yeah, absolutely. That's been that's been just another headwind. I mean, we've already found U.S. equities overvalued, and then with this inverted yield curve, it's like, okay, well, we still don't like U.S. equities. So that 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 certainly hasn't been additive. I think it's been you know what we've seen. Obviously, the reduction that we saw in the ten year. Um, not only inverts the yield curve more, but it also it actually reduces cost of capital too. So there's a positive to that, yeah. um, you know, in the short term. Now, if it, if it just the, the act of the inter, the long end of the, the the yield curve going down may actually stimulate shorter term. Now, if it just stays inverted and doesn't really move from there, then with a lag, that's that's going to have negative implications uh, since credit won't be expanding more than likely. In terms of where the um where these models look globally. Is there anything in that interest rate cycle that stands out? So you talked about the major markets. You have US, you have Europe, you have Japan, China, India. As you think about these markets, any what's the most interesting part of your economic modeling and these curves? What what that signals today for you all? Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've been we've been keeping a good eye on on India for a while. Their yield curve, you know, as the spot goes, is is positively sloped. Um, you have seen a small rise in, in the T bill yield um over the past several months, a little bit more than the ten year. So maybe just a hint of flattening, but net net still a positive slope. So we've been kind of keeping an eye on India and we think that could potentially be attractive growth opportunity. Certainly that market's performed quite well recently. Um Japan's another interesting one too where they're one of the few, uh, you know, economies still with, you know, uh, negative interest rate policy. The T-bill yield uh, remains uh, negative at negative 16 basis points. Uh, the 10-year had been capped at 50 basis points by the Bank of Japan for a very long time. And then uh, just a few months ago, they announced that they were going to uh, lift, lift that cap up to 1%. And immediately the 10-year pops up. So you get a nice steepening, uh, which, which could be indicative of future growth. Um, and then eventually the, the yield kind of settled back down a little flatter. So we were a little more excited by the potential uh, of, of the positive shift to a more steep yield curve, but maybe it's flattening back down. We've obviously seen a tremendous strengthening in the yen more recently too, um, which could be really harm the, the exporters there. I think today, you know, we're, we've been talking so much about the Fed. My own 
thinking of what's happening in the world today. I, I see geopolitics coming into play a lot. I see the you know your hot take to start was China. I think China's the, f- the front of the storm, uh, and you have people actually allocating to India to Japan at the in some ways at because of China. Now, maybe that's what's causing some of the behavioral signals for you to say, let's go into China. And I, I, there's got to be two sides of every market. There's got to be buyers and sellers. But when you look at those, India and Japan, anything else, you talked a little bit about the rates environment. What do you see in Japan? Uh, you mentioned the strong yen being hurt for the exporters. Any Anything of what the other parts of your model say for Japan? Yeah, you know, at this point, we it feels like some of the uh, the items, the the it's the yield curve in particular that's that's maybe not giving that strength a signal that we just had only just a few months ago with the lift of that cap. We've seen a, a almost a retreat in the the ten year coming down. There's all there's also been talks that the BOJ was maybe going to raise rates out into the negative interest rate policy, which would further invert that yield yield curve, which I think they're reluctant to do. Uh, they maybe walked that talk back just a little bit. Um, you know, so we'll see. We'll see what the model provides for us in the in the months ahead. But certainly not looking as attractive uh, as it once did just just a few months ago. So the price to sales is like the key. You know, when you talk about price to sales, it's going to be one of the lowest multiples. So it's going to be a cheap market. But all but all yeah. international is a cheap market, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you just you know, just because something's undervalued doesn't necessarily mean there's a catalyst for for investment, um, as we know. And, so, and undervalued markets can get even more undervalued. Right. So there's this combination when when you find these cheap things, it's how and obviously you guys have a lot of proprietary students. So you don't want to reveal all your secret sauce, but there's some combination of the technicals and the behaviorals that comes together. Is there one more important than the other for you all, or is it equally important, or does it dynamically shift? Anything you want to say about? Yeah, how- great question. We get that a lot. Yeah. Do you, how do you weight these different factors? And and it really, the answer is it kind of depends, right? It's not so standard. It depends on what the data is actually saying. So. You know, there may be months where valuation is a huge driver because something's really overvalued or really undervalued. And so it's having a much more meaningful impact. You could think of us as building a projection for each asset class. And so, you know, there may be months where the valuation contribution is very small just because maybe it's very fairly valued. And so there's not a lot to offer there uh, valuation wise. Um, whereas, you know, you, you might have sharp moves in interest rates like we've seen in the tenure here in the U.S. And so that's going to have a very meaningfully positive impact in the case of, of U.S. equity outlook from an economic perspective. So I think it more depends on the data than less, you know, any factor weightings necessarily. Sure. And and so and. Uh, all right. So we've talked a little bit about the global words we've covered a broad cross section. Anything else globally, you would say we cover a little bit Asia. U.S. We didn't really touch on Europe. Anything about the, those markets you want to say? Yeah, Europe. Europe. We just have not found particularly attractive for quite some time now. Uh, maybe earlier in the year was the model was more favorable on it. Um, now we did see a huge in the in the November month when things really raced up. We maintained that that you know negative outlook, and yet European equities were one of the best performers that month. Um, but what we what we're seeing in the data is just this continued inversion. It's inverting to even steeper levels um, as we see it today, which is of course with a lag going to impact even more negatively in the months to come. Uh, so you know slowdown in growth there. We are seeing some tightening in, in certain credit spread measures that we that we calculate for the region, and it certainly has positive investor momentum as we've seen just from the the November move. But you know I think the growth story uh, does not look particularly favorable there. Okay. Well, interesting. So we, we talked a, a bit of, of cross-section of, of global equities. You guys, when, in building multi-assets, I, I know you all have factored in commodities, things like gold and other commodities. You talked about valuation and price to sales. Is there a way you can value gold? How do you think about gold in all these other models? Yeah, gold, you can think of gold as the one asset that never changes in value. It's that everything else that's changing around it, right? Uh, gold is this useless hunk of metal that sits on a shelf and gathers dust, doesn't pay a dividend. It doesn't. And yet gold's one of the best performing asset classes over a long period of time. Right. Uh, and so 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 how, how do we value it? Well, we can reprice gold going way, way back in time 
uh, we can grow it in a variety of ways and then compare where that growth has been relative to the prevailing market price. So you could take CPI, for example, and go way back 150 years and grow the price of gold at the rate of CPI. You could go back all that time as well and grow it, say, at the growth of our monetary base as another proxy. And then these can give you, you know, try to give you some measure of over undervaluation relative to those barometers of growth. If those are reasonable proxies. Those don't have a huge emphasis uh, in, in the gold model, but they are there uh, just to provide some some level of information. Some ratio type analysis, gold versus thing, gold, people do gold versus oil. They do, you, we talked about yeah. the gold, the S&P created this index, the gold hedged S&P 500 or gold overlays. Those are things that you guys like to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are going to be great barometers to just gauge, you know, is this, is this trading where it should? Now that said, gold obviously has a lot of interesting dynamics. You brought up geopolitics. It's, it's historically been a great geopolitical hedge. We've seen a lot of central bank buying, potentially trying to get away from dollar dependency. Uh, and that's like, that, that was, there's a tremendous amount of buying by central banks this year and is anticipated to probably continue into the future, uh, at least in the near term. Um, one of the, one of the key drivers of our gold model really is real the real interest rate, which uh, Professor Siegel touched on uh, in his his remarks, as as well as the rate of change of that real yield. Uh, the real yield, you know, back at the what was it the beginning of 2022 when the market peaked, real yields on a 10-year inflation protected bond was negative 110 basis points. Insanity. Uh, and from you know yet yeah, you know December of 20 December of 21 or Jan of 22. You know, up until basically the fourth quarter of this year, uh, you know, in, in real interest rate went to about two and a half percent. I mean, that's a wild swing, you know, 3.6 percent change in the real yield. You can actually get positive real return from a bond that makes gold not so attractive when you can get real yield from paper currency. Um, now, that said, uh, which Professor Siegel also commented on was the fact that we did see that two and a half percent on the ten year tip, and it's now down at one point seven. And I think what we're going to see potentially, you know, the, the, the real yields and the price of gold tend to move inversely. Uh, and so, with continued reductions in the real yield, we may see, and the anticipation of, you know, lowering nominal interest rates, which will likely lead to the lowering of real interest rates, that's likely to be very beneficial to gold. On top of the geopolitics that you mentioned between whether it's China Taiwan. Uh, the Israel-Hamas conflict, um, etc. So, how when you think about it, I was going to ask that that bottom line question is like when you put it in models, um, is it at neutral, above weight, lower weight, and you know it's broke above two thousand? Uh, any commentary on the overall levels and and how you see it in in yeah in miles today? Yeah, we have yeah. So we, you know we think of the seasons of the market um, that there's there's different environments, different economic environments where different asset classes outperform. And because no model is perfect and no one can have a crystal a perfect crystal ball, you know we acknowledge that at all times investors should have some exposure to these key asset classes during economic growth. Equities perform really well. During, uh, you know, an overheated or an inflationary world, you really want, you know, commodities and or gold. Um, during a deflationary environment, um, you, you really want long bonds and, and duration in your portfolio. And during a credit contraction, you really want to hold on to cash and, and short-term T-bills. And so, you know, having a little bit of each of these in your portfolio at all times is, is, is super important and, and gold notwithstanding. So, you know, mo- and any of our core multi-asset solutions, offerings that we have for clients are always going to have some minimum allocation to gold. Uh, and then we'll, we'll build up from there. Okay. Um, in terms of the credit contraction views, I, I've seen some things on bank lending coming down. Is that today, when you think about the bond piece of the allocation, is that a something you reflect in models? Do you, do you think uh, we have more issues there? So you favor treasuries versus everything else? How do you think about the bond piece today? Yeah, we've been very uh, favorable on treasuries. Um, as, you may, as you may be aware, uh, for, for quite some time, we've really been out of credit um, and really any form of fixed income in our solutions. And at times, there's been a decent amount of fixed income. It's been a a wide variety of, of treasury offerings, whether it be U.S. Treasury floating rate notes, uh, whether it be T-bills across the spectrum from, from you know, one to three month T-bills up to six month, maybe two year even. Uh, and then we always have that ironclad, you know, intermediate duration fixed income that is seven to 10 year spot uh, as, as a minimum exposure uh, in the portfolios. We hold tips as well, both short term tips as well as intermediate duration tips in the portfolio. 
Uh, so it's been all forms of, of treasury. And uh, what would it take to get back into credit? Is it, There's got to be a spread widening. So you got to be post, you got you to see some meaningful spread pickup is what I imagine. Yeah, that's right. I, I think, you know, the, the spreads are spreads are tight and, you know, maybe don't reflect the risk that we had been seeing, particularly in U.S. equities being so overvalued. Now, that said, the narrative maybe or the base case has changed with the Fed's recent remarks, uh, and we may see this this rate reduction in the months ahead. And so one could argue that maybe we maybe we sat out too long in credit. Maybe now is an opportune time to get in hmm. uh, at least shorter term. That said, you know, we've been waiting for a valuation reset in the U.S. We said, we, you know, as we continue to say, U.S. equities are really overvalued. And so if they if they are if they are going to revalue down, likely that's going to be synonymous with an equity market drawdown in the U.S., which would likely not be good for credit and probably be decent for treasuries. So may, maybe now is not the right time. So I think we sit in two camps. We're still evaluating it. Um, you know, we do offer other solutions. We have a, mul- a tactical multi-asset income solution that has equity and fixed income and non-traditional sources of income. Uh, and so in that solution, you know, there are different forms of credit in there, short-term high yield and things of that preferred, things of this nature. Um, but back in the core solution, still all treasury. Is there a, a favorite part of that multi-asset income of what is a, you said equities bonds, what is, what's an example of something not equities? Well, you guys said short-term high yield, but is that, is that really that intermediate spot or is there something else like uh, that's generating income? Oh, uh, there's all kinds of interesting stuff in there. Uh, you should, I'm fa- I figured, I was going to see which one you want to highlight. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one one of the one of the funds I really like in there is uh, it's an actively managed uh, closed end fund solution. Hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's an ETF itself, but under the hood, it, it buys these these closed end funds generally at deeper discounts that become just discounts, and so they try to pick up the um, the the return right there. Um, that generates some nice income. There's a there's a great uh, new fixed income product. Uh, as well, that that's um, we're really excited about. That's generally T bills, but they they use um, you know call and put spreads on a variety of other ETFs to generate generate additional income. That's been a really neat uh, product as well. It's all sorts of interesting multi asset income solutions. <laughs> you, you know, Three Edge has been one of the interesting firms you guys have, and you have personally been there uh, as long as I've known you for. I mean, you can tell us, our listeners, how long. Talk, talk a little bit about the firm, your stint there, how staying staying with it with one firm for so long. Yeah, so you you know you referenced Windward or, or the name changed to Windhaven in 2010. Um, many of us who worked at that predecessor firm, uh, which started back in the mid 90s by by our founder of Three Edge and the founder of Windward, Stephen Cucchiaro. Um, you know, been doing this for a very long time. And many of us work together at that firm, work together here at this firm. So this is it's really, it's a special group of people. People, It's a real family culture. Um, despite the, a lot of the working from home, we still managed to really put a strong emphasis on, 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 uh, on culture at the firm. Um, what was and, it? Uh, you know, folk, what, go ahead. What was it like to go through a big merger with Schwab and then spin out and uh, start over again? <laughs> Uh, it was a really interesting experience, um, actually. Uh, that happened, I guess, that was uh, that was in 2012, that deal closed. So it's about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. Really interesting uh, experience to be uh, to merge and be acquired by a larger firm like Schwab and learn more about that since my foray into finance had largely been with uh, smaller boutique-like asset management firms. Um, but excited to, to be back at doing that again uh, here at 3Edge. Uh, folks are certainly welcome to learn more about our firm at our website. Uh, it's the number three, the word edge, E-D-G-E-A-M, as in assetmanagement.com. We also have a YouTube channel. I'd, I'd certainly invite folks to to check that out. Uh, they can just search the, the the three edge in there. Our channel will come up. We put out weekly videos that are about 10 minutes long, talking about the markets, talking about what our model's seeing, uh, if folks want to learn more uh, about us. So where would you, in terms of the people who use your models, is it on plat? Like, is there, who's the typical client who should be reaching out to you for more, for more information? Yeah, we serve a wide variety of, of client types. Um, you know, we serve high net worth individuals, more retail individuals, uh, charities, uh, corporations, pension plans. 
Uh, we're available through model delivery platforms uh, at Orion and, and uh, Town Square and Adhesion for advisors out there listening, um, as well as Cambridge Investment Research uh, and Potomac, uh, the, the union camp there. So there's a, a wide, you know, we custody for our direct business at Fidelity and Schwab, where we can we can essentially have a limited power of attorney to trade the account. You still see, you see all, it's still your account. You see your holdings and we'll just trade the account for you. Uh, so there's a wide, a wide uh, ability of uh, folks to be able to get access to our different solutions that we offer, uh, depending on, you know, how, how they want to access us. Sure. Any Anything, any commentary you'd see on the overall client base and, and as you see the trends in asset management things people using models like yourselves any 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 trends you'd speak to yeah i think i mean for, for i could speak to our own business but what we're seeing quite a bit you know the real growth is is on these these third-party asset management platforms or tamps i referenced some several of them orion uh cambridge investment research the, the growth there has been tremendous advisors are very easily able to move a lot of the investment management piece of, of the client relationship on, into these mod, ETF models that are easily accessible through these TAMPs. And you may say, well, they, you know, some advisors want access to two, three, or four of these, these models from firms like ours, but paired alongside other managers. And those TAMPs make it so easy for them in one account to blend all these managers together uh, you know, with ease. The technology has been really, really top-notch there. Um, and so we, we, too, partner with you know, peer firms like us to build multi-manager solutions where it makes sense to either enhance return versus what they're currently doing or to reduce risk. And by that, I mean lowering volatility or standard deviation, as well as lowering portfolio maximum drawdown, that peak to trough decline that a portfolio experiences. It's been, you know, very interesting uh, ways. And, and I've, I've gotten to be Come, uh, you know, good good friends with Eric here through the course of the industry. It's been good to to have you on. Any final hot takes? Things that you think people should be watching for in the new year? Oof, it's a good one. Uh, yeah, keep keep an eye on the, the rationale for the 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 alleged Fed cuts that that we're expected to see, uh, and maybe and historically, you know, like we said, a decline in rates is is not as typically led to equity market drawdowns, not not equity market outperformance. So, be careful in the, in the months ahead. Well, we've been talking with Eric Beagleison, Deputy CIO, Partner, Three Adjust Management. A fun conversation, Eric. Thank you for broad ranging across the world uh, view of how you look inside your model. Thanks, Chris, for hosting us here on campus. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.